In our study of 1 Peter, we come to chapter 1, beginning today with verse 8. He has just talked about the fact that they were going through all kinds of trials to prove the genuineness of their faith so that when Christ returns, they will be given glory and praise and honor to the Father when he comes back. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's the phrase that the King James uses, joy unspeakable and full of glory. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, now I want you to listen carefully, and if you're following along, read carefully, because um, these verses are filled with incredible meaning. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and of the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Oh, what an incredible section of scripture. And I've called it glorious joy uh, from that verse. The King James, again, joy unspeakable and full of glory. The first thing Peter tells us is that belief leads to joy. You've not seen him, you love him, you believe in him, and you're filled with glorious joy. We don't see him, but we love him. found this quote from Alexander McLaren in his sermon on this verse. There's nothing else in the world parallel to that strange, deep, personal attachment which fills millions of hearts to this man who died 19 centuries ago and which is utterly unlike the feelings that any man have to any other of the great names of the past. To love one unseen is a paradox, which is realized only in the relation of the Christian soul to Jesus Christ. We have not seen him, but we love him. I remember one of our, uh, at one of our churches, visitation team had gone out to visit uh, somebody who had uh, visited the church the previous Sunday and they were talking to her about faith and believing in Christ and she said to them every man in my life has hurt me in some way and now you're expecting me to trust a man I can't even see <laughs> you know you know that that's the paradox of the Christian faith we have not seen him but we love him it's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where he says we walk or live by faith, not by sight. That's one of the most important lessons of the Christian faith. It is a life of faith, not sight. 
Because if you can see it, you don't have to have faith. I don't have to believe that those of you who are here today are going to be here today because I see you. Now, I had to believe you would come a few minutes before you got here. But once I see you, I no longer need to have faith about it. And remember, Romans 8, 28 does not say we see God working in all things for our good. It says we know he's working all things for our good. All the difference in the world. That's why we sang Waymaker today. Even if I don't see it, you're working. Even if I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. We need to hold on to that because it's that belief, it's that faith that leads us to joy. Now, Peter is not ignoring the challenges of life. After all, he just wrote verse 6 where he talked about you have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He's just saying that in the midst of all of these trials that you're going through, you can rejoice because you believe in him. So what is the connection between believing in Christ during trials? What exactly is it that we believe about him? I think that takes us to Romans chapter 5. Uh, the verses are in your notes. If you've not downloaded the notes yet, please feel free to just push pause, go to the comment or description section and download the sermon notes and you'll have the reference there for you. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In other words, joy comes from knowing that God is in control. We don't see him, but we love him, and we believe in him, and we rejoice because of that faith, because we know he is in control. Joy is not the absence of suffering. Joy is not the absence of tests and trials. Joy is the presence of God. We don't rejoice because we're going through hard times. We rejoice because we know that God is at work during those hard times and he's in control of it all. You haven't seen him, but you love him. And even though you don't see him now, and remember, these were Christians in the mid-AD 60s who were going through intense persecution from Nero. He said, you, you don't see him now, but you believe in him. And you know that he is in control. And you know that he is working. And that leads to joy. But he reminds us again that this world is not our home. That's a consistent theme through Peter's writings in verse 9. You're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation. And that word there means the deliverance of your souls. He's reminding us that the ultimate goal is our deliverance from this earth. And I wondered what that receiving meant. You are receiving the end result of your faith. And I found out that it's a word that actually means to gradually understand more and more about it. So what he's saying is, please remember that the ultimate goal 
is your deliverance from this earth. When Christ comes back, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the end result of our faith. The salvation, the deliverance of our souls. And we are to gradually learn and understand more and more about that. And more and more about our salvation. And more and more about the real reality of heaven after this world. And we won't enjoy all of our salvation and all that it involves until we get there. But now we come to these fascinating verses, 10 through 12. And the first thing these verses tell us is that the prophets tried to understand what they were prophesying. You need to catch that. The prophets were trying to figure out what they were talking about. It's like y'all on some, some, some Sunday mornings, trying to figure out what is he talking about. <laughs> well, sometimes I wonder what I'm trying to talk about. But these prophets were trying to understand what they were prophesying. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out when and where and how these sufferings of the Messiah were going to happen and the resurrection and the glories that they were prophesying. They were prophesying, but they didn't understand what they were prophesying. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us that the prophets were inspired, moved by the Holy Spirit, not by their own will. And even though the very words they spoke were the words God led them to speak, they didn't fully understand the meaning behind the words. There are a couple of interesting verses in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, he has this vision, and, and he says, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, he said, I heard, but I did not understand. So we need to understand that as these prophets are prophesying, they're not aware of the fulfillment. They're not aware of what's going to happen. They're just aware they're prophesying. And what's fascinating is they wanted to know more about it. They wanted to know the time and the circumstances and how all of this were going to happen. And here's the key, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And that leads me to say, we, just like the prophets, are to serve the following generations. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but they were serving generations to come. God raised up these prophets so that through their ministries, we have the Bible that clearly points to the person and the work of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And the work of the prophets was so we would have the word of God, so that we could come to faith. And so somehow, the Holy Spirit says to them, this is not about you. This is about generations to come. 
And this is the point of this study where I say, okay, God, you got to give me some insight into this because I feel like there's something here. <laughs> and I, I, I can't prove this to you biblically, but I have an idea that it went something like this. Isaiah is prophesying. And he has no idea what he's talking about. And so he says to God, God, what is it that I'm talking about? What is this? And you, Bethlehem Ephrata, from you will come the Redeemer. What, what, what is that? And God says, here's what you need to understand, Isaiah. In the generations to come, people will know the story of the Messiah. And they will know that he was born in Bethlehem Ephrata, just as you are now prophesying. And that will help them come to faith in me. That will help them understand who I am because of what you do. Because Isaiah, this isn't about you. This is about people yet to come. This is about following generations. And when you say he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, you, you don't understand what that's about. But in the generations to come, there will be people who experience that kind of a relationship through Christ. And they'll look back on what you wrote and they'll understand. Lord, what is this thing about a virgin conceiving and being called Emmanuel? Could you please tell me when and where and how and what's going to happen here? God says, Isaiah, there's going to come a time when people are going to know the story of the birth of the Messiah and they'll remember that prophecy. And there will be an apostle, generations to come, who will say, this is what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. But Lord, what about this bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of his peace is on him? I, I don't understand. Could you please tell me what that's about? And God says, Isaiah, there's going to come a time when people will look at an event in the life of my son and they will understand that passage. Isaiah you're not serving yourself. You're serving those yet to come. That's incredible. And, and Peter says, they were serving you when they spoke of things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you. You remember, I think it was the old Clairol commercial, she told two friends, and she told two friends, and she told two friends, and the screen, you know, fills up with everybody. Peter's saying, this is how the gospel spreads. The prophets didn't understand everything that they were prophesying, but they were serving you. They were serving the following generations, and so they passed it on, and the people who preached it to you got it, you know, eventually from them, which leads me to say, do you remember who that is in your life? The people who served you by preaching to you. The people that were instrumental in you coming to faith in Christ. The people that led you. The people who by their example stirred a hunger in you to learn more of God. The people that you observed and you knew they were Christians but you weren't understanding all about it, but you watched their lives and it awakened in you a desire for God. Do you have a list of those names? 
Do you remember those people who preached to you the gospel? As I was working on this, I ran across a story. A man who had a good friend, and they had been friends for years, but he had never heard his friend's conversion story. And so we asked him one day, I don't know, they were out to lunch or playing golf or something. He said, how did you come to know the Lord? And the guy said, you, you won't believe it. He said, well, try me. He said, well, I came to know the Lord through an obituary. He said, somebody had dragged me to a Sunday morning church service. There was nothing I wanted less than to go, but it was one of those things that I couldn't get out of. And so as I walked in, I picked up the bulletin. And the bulletin was many pages. It was more like a newsletter. And I figured if I read that real slowly through the service, I won't have to pay any attention to anything that's going on. And he says, as I'm reading this church newsletter, I come to a paragraph that announced the death of one of their church members who was a devout Christian. And it talked in that paragraph about how she had died with joy and she had died with a smile on her face. And he said, I found myself weeping. And I said, I want to be able to die like that. And I couldn't wait for church to be over so I could talk to my buddy and say, what am I supposed to do so that I can die like that? <laughs> God has all kinds of ways to get the gospel to you. So you know the turn is coming, right? And the next question is, for whom are you that voice? Because we're to serve the following generations too. God didn't give us the gospel so that it could stop with our generation. He didn't give us the gospel so that we could be a reservoir of all this biblical knowledge. He gave it to us so that we would be a river of blessing to the following generations. Just as the prophets, not really aware of what the hell they were prophesying, eventually pass it on to those who preached to the believers in Peter's day, and eventually passed it on to those who were instrumental in our coming to faith, so we cannot let the message stop with us. We must pass it on. We must be that voice leading others to Christ. We must be that example piquing an interest in them about faith. We must live our lives in such a way so that people who know what we say about our faith are impacted as they watch us live our lives. We are to serve the following generations. Ah, but then the last sentence. Even angels long to look into these things. So here's Peter saying, the prophets wanted to look into this salvation because they're hundreds, in some cases thousands of years away from Christ's death and burial and resurrection. And, and they wanted to know more. The angels want to look into these things. And boy, that really got me thinking. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail with you. 
I don't want to raise any questions in your mind that aren't already there. But, but I want to talk a little bit about this concept of the angels wanting to look into our salvation. As I understand the teachings of Scripture, human beings and angels were given a free will. They were given what we call free moral agency, the ability to choose whether or not to obey God. For human beings, we know that Adam and Eve blew that. And they chose to disobey. And we know in our lives, we've chosen to disobey. The good news is our probationary period is still here. We still have the ability to exercise our free will and accept Christ as our Savior. That free will, I believe, only ends at our death. Once you have died, it's too late and your eternity has been determined by the choices you made during your probationary period. The angels, as again, as I understand it, also had a probationary period. You may remember the archangel, the highest, second highest being in heaven, Lucifer, who was the son of the morning, who decided that he would exercise his free will and lead a rebellion against God because he wanted to be number one. And that's where you remember a third of the angels followed him, were cast out of heaven, which is where the demons come from. Those are the bad angels. The good angels, and remember, two-thirds of them are with God. So every time you face an attack from the devil and his hordes, just remember there's two angels on your side for every one on the devil's side. But they had this probationary period, and the angels, who are the good angels who stayed true to God, then, at some point, that probationary period for them was over, and their rest of their existence was sealed. The demons cast out of heaven, the angels still in heaven. These are the angels Peter's referring to. The angels who did not rebel against God. The angels who stayed true to him. He said they want to look into your salvation. Now let's think about these angels. The scripture says that they rejoiced over creation that the sons of the morning sang together. They were at creation, and they were singing over the beauty of God's creation. You may remember that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. As the angel had announced to the shepherds, To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. But they did not fully understand what that meant. Because these angels had not sinned. Therefore, they did not need a Savior. Therefore, they could not understand on a personal level. They, I'm sure they understood it theoretically. But they didn't know the emotion of it. It's like if I tried to describe to you what a mango tasted like, you could have all the theoretical knowledge of what a mango tastes like, 
But until you taste a mango, you have no idea what a mango tastes like. Unlike anything else you've ever put in your mouth. And that's the way the angels are with our salvation. They know the theory, but they don't know the experience because they never tasted it for themselves. When Christ goes into the wilderness for his hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil, remember the angels came and ministered to him. But they probably had no idea. Why did you have to go through this? What's happening here? The angels ministered to him at Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood and praying, not my will, thine be done. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The angels are there ministering to him, but they don't know. They don't know what he's facing. They don't understand the agony of the upcoming crucifixion. They're there, but they don't understand it. They were there to receive him back to heaven at the ascension. But they didn't understand because they had no need of a savior. They didn't need to be redeemed. They'd never experienced sin or disobedience. They'd never experienced the pain of a guilty conscience. So they had never experienced the joys of being forgiven. And as they watch sinners repent, and the Bible says that the angels rejoice when sinners repent. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, this is good. It makes the Father happy. It makes Jesus happy. What's happening down there? You know? Because they don't know it for themselves. Because they never needed salvation. And Peter says, you need to be overwhelmed with joy at your salvation. Even the angels are trying to figure it out. The angels want to look into this, but they don't understand it on a personal level because they never needed it on a personal level. Peter says you need to rejoice with glorious joy over your salvation. The prophets wanted to know more about it. The angels want to look into it and I think maybe one day God will somehow allow them to to know that feeling of, of joy at forgiveness even though they won't sin because in Ephesians Paul says that God wants to show his greatness to the angels by the way he works in us so if the angels get excited about your salvation and wish they could understand it more how much more should we be overwhelmed with glorious joy at our salvation. Don't ever get bored with your salvation. Don't ever get bored at the Christmas story. Don't ever get bored at the Easter story because there are, who knows, how many angels in heaven desperately wanting to look into this and we experience it every day. The joy of sins forgiven. I, I pray that somehow you can meditate on that and, and God will unlock it to you because I know that I've done a poor job at, 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 
at unlocking it to you the way he unlocked it to me. But I, I just want you to be overwhelmed with your salvation. Even the angels want to look into it. As I was thinking on this, an old song, I don't know how old it is, I think I heard it in college, came to my mind. And we're going to close by listening to that song. You'll find the link to that song, again, in the comment or description section. It's three minutes and 51 seconds long. Please take the time to listen to this song. It, it will bring this sermon to a, to a good conclusion for you. And, and it's, it's a song that says, Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And it reveals to us through this song that they want to look into our salvation but they can't sing the song with us because they don't understand it. Holy, holy is what the angels say. And now, Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and give you his peace now and evermore. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here today. You're dismissed.